Hey everyone, welcome back to Product Journeys and to 2023. Lockie and I have had a nice long summer break, or not so summer break maybe here in New Zealand, and are excited to get into our next set of product journeys for this year. This is mainly just a shout out to you as a listener. Thank you for listening. We are always interested in hearing from people, so flick us a message on LinkedIn or any platform that you have us on if you know of anybody with a really interesting product journey or just a nice story then please let us know because we are always keen to hear we want to talk to lots of different people so yeah get in touch let's get into it Hey, and welcome to Product Journeys. I'm Frank Gleisner. And I'm Lachlan Robertson. We're both product managers stumbling our way through our product journeys. We're out to meet amazing product people and learn a bit about their skills and experiences. In this episode, we're talking to Lauren Croft. Lauren is a product manager at ShareZ. Her team focuses on existing ShareZ platform that investors know and love, building tooling to make the corporate action and tax experience lovable and fun. Lauren originally started her career as a structural engineer, working on projects such as Transmission Gully, the Kaikoura Earthquake Recovery in Wellington, and a number of bridges and wharves in the Lower North Island. After a stint travelling through Europe, Lauren returned to New Zealand in early 2020 and began working at Shearsies. Lauren has found the perfect opportunity in Shearsies and product, combining her passion for solving complex problems, efficiency, and processes, and sharing knowledge, as well as connecting with communities and empowering everyday people to grow their wealth. Lauren, it's very nice to have you. Welcome to the podcast. We'll kick off today, as we usually do, with your product journey. So how did you get to where you are today? Oh, cool. Thanks heaps for having me. I started product about three years ago. I would say this is my second phase of my career. I studied civil engineering at university and so spent the first five years of my working life working as a consultant, designing bridges, wharves, spending a lot of time in modelling and spreadsheets and a lot of time out on site measuring, reinforcing. It was a really cool experience. I got to work on things like the Kaikoura earthquake and Transmission Gully. That one there is probably one of those hallmarks that I'll drive over and be like, look, kids, here's what I worked on one day. But definitely over that time working in engineering, I started looking at sort of the career pathways and what was happening in that space. And it was, it's, very hierarchical. It is trying so hard to change, but it's still a boys club. It's still, you do this, then you get this and you get to move to this next space. And I think as somebody who's quite out there and wants to challenge ideas, get involved, understand why we're doing things and has always been quite people-led, I found it quite hard defining my pathway through this place that was really, really structured. And things in engineering take time. So you could invest three months of your life, a year in your life to come to the end of it and have no confidence that what you're doing and putting out into the world is the best thing that they actually need because it's a year later or get the budget cut and nothing happens at the end of it and you're like, oh, cool, great, just that was a year. 
don't worry about it. <laughs> That'll never see the daylight. So it was a it was a really interesting environment. But I think as my time in the industry progressed on, I spent a lot of time working in young professional groups and young engineering groups and really connecting with our community. And I, I found a real stride in that space of sharing knowledge and getting a bit of an understanding of what people want to get out of their lives and careers and professional development. And I really loved that. And so there was a sort of point in my work where there was a course coming up and I was like, oh, I see that we're offering this people management course. Can I go on this? I really reckon I'll get a lot of value from it and I'll be able to apply it on these areas. And I got the, we think you'd be so great in that course in five years time. And I, I looked at them and I was like, okay, cool. So I've got to wait till I'm 30 before I go on this people management course because that's the way it's done. Do you have a reason or was it just? It was purely time and roll and not experience or things like that so yeah I, I it was just yeah, yeah I kind of like that's not uh, so I can't climb on the the high ropes or monkey bar on this climbing wall and kind of make my own way path up it like this is a ladder and that was one of the first ones where I was like oh maybe I don't quite fit here maybe I think about things a little bit differently and I will add that the engineering industry has wonderful people who think about things in so many different ways and it's awesome but I think I started to realize that it wasn't quite for me I had a couple of friends who were working in the tech space and it looked really really cool so I was like oh how do I get over there and it was perfectly timed there I was like look how I get over there is quitting my job and going overseas for nine months living in a camper van and driving around Europe <laughs> this is what we need we need we need a break and my partner was like yep this lines up perfectly for me so we jumped over had a European summer and drove around in a camper van for six months and then worked on a ski field for three months in Austria when no one spoke English so learning how to communicate was a really big part of that <laughs> and our German Austro-German was abominable like I think what I've retained is how to say potato like it's really not <laughs> good. is that all you ate over there <laughs> yeah oh, there was a lot of beige a lot of beige yeah but we were there and the only news channel we could get and English was BBC and CNN, and that's when COVID started to happen. Austria was pretty quick to shut its borders with Italy. We were sitting here being like, oh, things are heating up. And our family back in New Zealand were like, nah, it doesn't seem like much of a thing. Don't worry about it. Stay over there. Write it out. And we had plans to come back to New Zealand for a wedding. So we were like, oh, we might just bring our flights forward a couple of weeks. Wouldn't regret it. And we fast exited out of there. We were exploring the ideas of applying for jobs in UK and moving over there which was really cool I ended up applying for like product marketing roles at the time or looking for fintech companies and sort of spaces that sort of interested me and I was putting CVs together and applying for these jobs trying to highlight these transferable skills just getting calls back from recruiters being like I see you've applied for this job but I see you've got five years of engineering experience we really need engineers. I can get you a great salary. Just come work as an engineer. And so I was sitting there hitting my head against, well, how do I get into this industry and this, these other countries? But fortunate timing of COVID, maybe. We can, we can look back at it maybe a little bit positive now in terms of career aspects. As when we got back to New Zealand, I had done some work with Sharesies in the past. So when I was working with young engineers and young professionals in Wellington, I had come out of university, got a salary for the first time and gone, gosh, what do you do with money? I have no idea. How do you money? What's my KiwiSaver contribution? What should it be? 
that was right at the early phase of Sharesies and we'd organized an event where Brooke, one of the co-founders, came along and we had a mortgage broker and a couple of other financial people just talk about the industry. So I'd kind of made a connection with Sharesies beforehand and one of my old flatmates had moved to Wellington to start working at Sharesies and he rang me up one day and was like, oh man, we're so slammed. Man, do you know anyone who's unemployed? who's Wellington-based. I'm one week into lockdown, totaling a living at my in-laws. I'm unemployed. I'd love to help. I love solving problems. I really, really would love to be able to come in and help out in your customer care. We call it investor care, just coming on as a temp. And he was like, oh, you're not Wellington-based. Well, nobody is working from the office at the moment. I understand culture's huge, but how about it? Let's try the first Tauranga employee at the time. I ended up meeting a couple of other people from the team and joining Sharesies just on a temporary contract in our customer care space. It was an incredible space to get to know who the Sharesies customer is, what's the problems they have, how does the Sharesies business work, what sort of problems are we having at the moment and learning how to translate that all. And that was my first taste of what does working in a tech company look like. And at that time as well, Sharesies, my first couple of months cracked to 150,000. So over three months, they doubled how many customers they had. And the staff was about 40 to 50 on the books. And now we're about 250 and we've got 500,000 investors. So it was a really high growth time for Sharesies to come in. And that's where I started to understand what being in tech was and heard about product. So you started in the customer Insight space, I think mean, you were saying, and then at some point transitioned across to a product. Is that right? Or was it a formal transition? Or I'm, I'm assuming growth startup, you kind of just <laughs> went to where the problems were. <laughs> yeah. At that time, Sharesies was one product team when I started and I was in our customer care space and started learning about what product was. I was talking to a few people and I was, here are the things I really care about. I love solving problems for people. I love the turnaround timeframe of being able to put something out there and understand and learn. I really like connecting with our customers, but I've got this analytical numbers background. What is out there for me? What does this look like? And because Sharesies only had one product team, we had a single product manager And so I had never heard of product ownership before they advertised their first couple of product ownership roles. And so I I saw that come together, got on the phone to the current product manager. I've seen you put this role out. That literally translates and puts a name to a lot of the things I've been looking to do. We started that conversation a bit before that as well. I had been putting together sort of opportunities for efficiencies and improvements across our investor care operations product processes so I'd sort of been connecting with product already inadvertently but because I was new to the industry didn't quite have the language to understand what that step into product would look like until they advertise the product owner roles so that's how I moved into product ownership and at that time they split into we were launching US shares at the time and then we had the everything else team so I jumped in and my foray into product ownership was looking after the everything else team. So it was a really hit the ground running. The term is not blind leading the blind, but I would say treading water, trying to learn as you go along. When I took on that role, two other really experienced product owners joined Sharesies at the same time. So I sort of had a couple of people around me to support, offer a bit of guidance. And then from there, we've gone through 
so many iterations of product now, but about a year ago, I moved into a product management position, looking after our corporate actions and tax space. Nice. Yeah. When you like first started that transition, what were some of the big learnings or the key things? Oh, this is actually a really important thing for me to remember. <laughs> were there any things that stood out? Yeah, definitely. I look back and I'm on paper, took a step back in my career by coming in and doing customer care. There was a step back in salary and all that sort of stuff, but I just learned so much about the business and it taught me really early on to have that customer first mindset and really understand and advocate for that viewpoint. In terms of coming in, it's hard to translate what those transferable skills are because yes, I gained heaps of insights and knowledge into how the business worked, which is really invaluable when you're trying to move into new parts of a company or take on new experiences. But being able to translate the skills that I learned in engineering around risk and understanding risk, the risk is different between financial and people, health and safety risk, but that understanding of risk and then a lot of the stuff in terms of prioritization, making the tough calls, making the big decisions, decisions on your feet. So it's acknowledging everything that you have with you that you'll bring into product. And that's something that I remind myself day in and day out now. But yeah, it's being able to make those translations, I think, and owning that space. So cool. And I think, as you say, there's actually a lot of transferable skills that maybe you can't name, but actually across industries are probably more prevalent than people realize. Yeah. Um, I'm intrigued as well. You said you there were two other product owners that came in who had more experience. What was that like for you? You were in the team already, but maybe didn't have time experience. But how did you manage that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I only have looked back now, probably a year ago, to be like, wow, that was a really interesting time. We had a lot of touch points as the three of us, but we had quite distinct areas we were looking after at the time as well. So they were very much in this, we're launching US shares, what does that look like, where did this go? And I was very much in that, okay, how do I look after everything else that's just happened? So I started out in the, the backlog, I got a little bit of advice from them. I would say we sort of coached each other because I knew the business and how it works and who to go to, and they were really able to help with how to make those prioritization calls, weighing those things up, and some just really foundational pieces of product and I would just observe how they were asking questions or interacting okay that's a really interesting way to approach it maybe I'll try that next time and also when you are coming into a product ownership role you're not standing there by yourself there's other product people but you've got a whole team and so the product delivery team that I was working with were really really experienced and so they were able to offer guidance and sort of drive some of like even those early stand-ups or refinement sessions forwards using their own experience. So I could learn a lot from them as well because that wasn't their first product rodeo. So I'm really grateful for the time that people around me put in to making sure that we were set up for success, which was really great. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing you said I really liked was the the monkey bars versus the ladder <laughs> approach. <laughs> I'd really thought about it like that, but you're expected just to jump in and you, and you, yeah, you do collaborate and you use those people around you to help you learn rather than climbing up this ladder. What's been the things that have stood out coming into tech compared to civil engineering ladder hierarchy? I'll just add on that monkey bars 
climbing ropes framework, when you're looking at the people around you as well, there is a lot of different ways to do products. You're all working towards the same goal, but how my colleague might be applying product thinking to their space will be different to mine and we can help each other out. So that was something I think I learned quite early on when looking at the space and how Shezies has grown out in their product teams as well, is that there's lots of different thinking, but having that uniformity across what we're trying to achieve and the outcome and things like that is being really key. On the differences, I think the ability to move fast and learn, that's what's got me really passionate about the product space, is that you can put something out in the world and get that feedback straight away and you can learn from that iterate change you can learn that you have put something out there and that it was the wrong thing and you go great we only invested x amount of time into that as opposed to three years and it's really addictive getting into that cycle too you're like oh great i've just heard back all this information and i've got to process it and what decisions do we make what have we learned and being able to have that conversation whether internally with your team or with the customer themselves that's really powerful because it's that ability to collaborate, even if that person you're collaborating with is your customer and you're keeping them front of mind. But we have the opportunity to learn and change, which I think has been the, the biggest yeah, change and revelation of coming into the space is that it can be fast and fun and challenging all in one. Yeah, I, I like that distinction. And, and the other part that I'm I'm hearing there as well is, in a way, the innovation difference, perhaps, between the two industries. And not to say that construction doesn't have innovations in a way, but you mentioned Transmission Gully before around building a big road project that takes many years to deliver. It's something that's semi-repeatable, right? There's been other big road mm. projects versus in tech you're trying to build a new product and do things that perhaps you don't have a rubber stamp to copy. So the same approach wouldn't apply. This is not really how that industry operates, I guess. No, exactly. And there's innovation in the engineering industry, but it's how do we solve seismic earthquakes on this one portion of this bridge structure is quite different as opposed to X person's done that over there, but we've heard this from a customer and I reckon we can flip the way they do that on the head. Or one example from my work at the moment is a lot of the work in a corporate actions or tax space is all heavily paper-based and has always been paper-based and that's just the way that people have always done it. But Sharesies as a tech company with an app, we can't have our customers printing out pieces of paper and filling out their votes and then sending them off that's a really poor experience and not really the Shearsies experience. So how do we translate something that was heavily paper-based into something that's new and a creative way, but still meeting all those regulatory requirements? There's opportunities to rethink the way things have been done. Being able to challenge those thinking is really cool. I would add as well, so my journey into product coming in very fresh and early on to a growing business who an expanding product function was quite new to them is that a lot of product can be quite intuitive when you're looking at strategy. What's logical in the space? What makes sense? Having those conversations. And when I was moving in and I didn't really have a toolbox of, say, Miro templates that I could just call on, I was making it up a little bit along the way. And then I got a new manager a year and a half ago and I was probably about eight months into product at that time. And I was like, oh, I'm just running our OKR process and I'm doing it like this. And she was like, have you seen this framework before? Because I think that might streamline this a little bit. You're doing it right and you're getting all the right information in there. But here's a way neater template. 
And I think that's when I first was introduced to Lean Canvas models, because if you don't know what to Google, you don't know how to Google it. It was a really interesting revelation for me. I was getting there, making it work, and I had processes in place, and I'd learned the most efficient way for us to do it as a team. But then to have somebody else come in who was senior and had quite a bit of product management experience to be like, hi, have you heard of a Lean Canvas, a two-by-two matrix? Have you heard of all these things before? And I was like, no, but I have so many places that I can apply all of these things. So it's it's quite cool to have had that time to work it out while feeling completely supported. It's really nice. I mean, really nice is all validating for you as well to have been like, actually, I've, I've done that. Okay, maybe it's not as streamlined, but I've got that thinking in place, which is, yeah, must have yeah. been really nice too. Talking of tools and frameworks, of all the ones that you've learned, have you got any particular favourites or ones that you use quite often? Yeah, I think everybody has their go-to, go-back ones. And I think the the impact versus effort two-by-two two matrix, I think about it sometimes when just prioritising, not necessarily having to draw it out, but just having that specialisation in my head when looking at things relatively. But it's a really powerful communication tool, especially if saying no feels hard, is to go, okay, so here are our priorities right now. Here they are relative to the impact for the customer or and business balanced and then here's the effort and then where do you think your piece fits in here okay let's have a conversation about it do we need to move some things around relative and then i think the only other one is the five whys which is just why why i'm not going to say five whys (laughs) (laughs) but yeah just getting into the problem and the customer problem you're, you're two by two to jump back to that is that something you have an enduring asset that you have all your different priorities on the living two by two or you use that when appropriate during those stakeholder discussions as the example? It depends. It comes and flows. I don't have all of our priorities mapped out in a two by two, but say, for example, if we're having a retro at the end of the tax year, we'll look at reflecting all the nice to haves, all the things we need to be thinking about for next year that we didn't get a chance to approve. So on the back of quite large projects, that are cyclical like taxes, I use them all the time to track those changes. So yeah, and otherwise it's more of a case by case. For example, working with our operations teams, they'll bring a whole bunch of problems and we'll sort of collaborate on it together. Yeah, no, that makes sense. One of the always difficult parts of, for me, the product role is the priorities game of when people come and want stuff, having something that can actually be used as a tool in that conversation. I think that's a really, really awesome thing to call out. Definitely. And I don't know if it's just because OKRs are very front of mind. It's coming to the end of a quarter, new quarter moving into the new year. But having that matrix, which can then feed into looking at what's our business OKR, what are we targeting? Will this help us drive towards that? And just having the OKRs really clearly defined, which you can then break down and feed back into looking at all the priorities in a two by two, especially if you have a few different stakeholders around the business with competing priorities like corporate actions and tax, we are one team, but we have both of these two really big areas. So we do need to make calls and trade-offs between them. So being able to communicate those in a really clear way, which is your roadmap. If we need to get into more detail, the two by twos and then that feedback up, it's, Mm. yeah, it can be quite powerful. So OKRs, objectives and key results. Yes. Do you use that across the business at Shares, I'm assuming? That cascades down through all of the different divisions into your teams? Yes. Yeah. So 
their objectives are set by your high-level business leaders and then the key results and what's really feasible and what will help us get towards those. That's quite a collaborative process between your design, engineering, product leaders. So DEP is shortened down and then it's stepping down into your team. What initiatives, what discovery, what do we need to be looking at that will help us get towards these objectives? What do we know from our customers at the moment that will help drive those forwards and having a bit more of a collaboration in the team? The team doesn't have the chance to really set maybe what the objective for the business is but feeds back up onto so what, what's feasible in those key results and has real ownership over what we do that helps us get towards them and then it's that measure as we go through the quarter of how we're stacking up. Very cool. As she says is relatively new I guess it's yeah. really nice that OKRs are I feel like they come a little bit later often for companies or, or startups. So it's a really, really good model to get everyone aligned and really drive towards like the same direction and a direction that's going to make an impact rather than, oh, this was cool and let's go here. And um, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, as a somebody new coming into product, what skills or areas do you think are really important for people to dive deep into or prioritize? Because there's a whole lot of different skills and, and things that you need to think about in product is pretty diverse so what from your experience are the key ones oh, such a good question because yeah there are so many things and tech moves fast and product moves fast and things are constantly changing i think it's really important to nail that customer story and so get really clear on who your customer is and what you're trying to achieve in your space getting really clear on who our customer is and what the outcomes we're trying to drive for and keeping outcomes front of mind so yeah, storytelling is key because once you've got your outcome you want to get is how do you get everybody else on board on with that journey with you. So connecting with those people around you and sharing that story and the whys and your outcome with everybody. Get comfortable talking and reiterating and sharing that. Focus on scope as well and getting really into what are we trying to achieve towards this outcome, what's really feasible and learning to let go and say no and being really open to learning that bit more it's it's not something that i guess you can teach but it's something that you need to be aware of and you'll learn as you go along but being aware that things can change quickly and to not hold on to those pieces and be okay with letting them go because something more exciting and more important will come along so yeah scope is that's quite an interesting concept as well because the other part which I know engineering teams struggle with is that responsibility aspect of when you've built something being responsible for maintaining that going mm. forward and also what parts are within your realm of responsibility to solve and what might be other teams within the business. I find those conversations really difficult for that scoping part as well. Do you have any thoughts on that or approach or advice? I would say definitely a challenging part of it is learning when to stop and say this is enough and we won't be investing in this any further at this point in time and then communicating that wider so we have a bit of a thing and I'm going to come out and say it tech debt is really really hard to get on top of in the space that I'm working in we have a lot of foundational technical systems that we build on top of that we need to maintain that enables us to release product features quickly, but also our product features to go out into the world. And there is that prioritization trade-off between 
are we going to go release this new feature or is it more valuable for us right now to get down some of this tech debt so our systems are more robust but i'll say that tech debt is the easiest to kick the can down the road the hardest to pick up again but best to do as soon as possible when it comes to boundaries once you've released a product out into the world we take an approach of who was the last person to work in that space who has the capacity to solve that problem and then go from there because shares is essentially as one product with 10 product teams working in it so having really open conversation about who's releasing what and working in what space is really really important that's yeah tech debt is a killer i suppose and also you say that's all part of prioritization in a way isn't it tech debt is part of that big picture that you have to manage in your backlog is that driven from product or engineering or is it just the whole company that's been like this is really important and we need to keep working on it shares is a financial services company so it's really important for us to stay on top of regulation and compliance so understanding where our trade-offs are when we're building features and then looking back at them and learning making changes that's really important we have a really strong compliance first view as a business because we wouldn't exist if we weren't meeting those regulatory obligations so making sure we stay on top of things like tech debt or changes to markets and making sure we're changing how we do tax to keep up with them or constantly iterating and improving a lot of our processes that's really important we've got so many opportunities for automation and really innovative stuff and that will really help us grow and thrive in a business too but i think having a really strong compliance view and knowing that without it we wouldn't have our customers and wouldn't be able to do what we do and strive towards those big goals that we have well for me it comes back to before you talked about parts of the role being understanding risk right technical debt if you don't pay it down is just straight up a risk to your business so you need to do something about that risk (laughs) or it's just accepting it and look we've made the call that this Mm. risk is something we can be comfortable for now but let's keep checking back in on it and i think something that i've learned moving into tech is getting more comfortable with the risk and what's an okay risk to take at this time what risk can we own what risk do we need to pass up around the business and having frameworks around that and the levels that you're comfortable with as a person because everybody has different risk levels and that translates into how you work as well and as well as how you invest how great (laughs) full circle there we go um looking at time we might move on to some more rapidish questions for you thus far what's been your biggest accomplishment in your career can be professional or personal Oh, cool. For me, I think it is, it's taking that leap and trusting myself of moving into the product space. It can be hard to leave a comfort zone and take on a new opportunity. That's huge for me. And I would implore anybody who's interested, you never regret trying it out. There was a couple of features that we released earlier this year as a team and getting a voting product out to New Zealand investors that was completely, I mentioned it earlier, but completely paperless and changed the way that especially retail investors were able to engage with companies and have their say because that's such a huge part of, I mean, being an investor is having a say in how a company operates and what they do and make those changes. And so being able to get that out to New Zealand base this year was really really awesome and yeah that was that's probably like a bit of a highlight and how we do it 
That's super cool, especially when you work on something for a while and yeah. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned? Oh, there's so many, but I think circles of influence is a framework. You can only control what's in your circle of influence. Work's a really busy space. Life comes into it. And so it's taking that step back. What can I influence in this situation? What do I have the power to make change in? And then actually, what does my manager need to own or look after? Or what can I leave for somebody else to do and drop at this moment? I think it comes back to the making sure we're working on the highest priority thing for you at any given time. And that might be looking outside of work and be the most valuable thing for me to do right now is to rest or it's to go out for a run. It's a model that I've introduced my partner and my family and it's super simple. What can I influence here? And asking that question and that's been the biggest lesson. I think I picked that up from a podcast I was listening to. It's just been really invaluable in, in working in the product space. There you go. You mentioned podcasts. Do you listen to many others and do you have any recommendations for people? Yes, I'm a very avid podcast listener. I will leave the trashy gossip ones out. I have listened to How I Built This, which is just a classic Guy Reyes one, years and years, talking to founders who've released different products, run big companies. I have always find it incredibly interesting just to hear their story and how they've done it. The other podcasts that I would say I listen to quite religiously that quite heavily influence my work is The Imperfects, which is all about getting vulnerable and sharing and leading and people's stories and then Esther Perel she's an incredible relationship psychologist and so much of what we do as product people is build relationships and learn to understand people and sometimes it's getting vulnerable yourself so that people feel comfortable in a situation or it's learning how to step up and lead big deep conversations and I think it's really cool. Goals we might have to compare and contrast podcasts or share with each other because i have a whole list as well and i love getting new ones so oh great awesome. yeah we've afterwards. got many a group chat i'll send you an email afterwards oh, sweet. yeah yeah awesome <laughs> what about a book or an article that you're reading or a blog that you'd recommend teresa torres who is a product thought leader her book continuous discovery habits has really helped me refine my thinking around how we approach problems, how do we strip away all of the processes that we just kind of have to do to get really clear on what incorporating discovery and learning into day-to-day product delivery. And then I think the other one is, and this is completely on the side, but it's just one I think about all the time, and it's a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I think what's coming out of my recommendations is I'm really interested about people and how we work and why we work together. But the value of sleep and how it interacts with everything in our lives. It can be so easy to deprioritize, but man, it's so valuable. Very true. We're coming up on Christmas. You'll probably be at a few barbecues with some friends or maybe family. How do you describe what you do for a role as a product manager? Oh, it's always a great one, eh? The elevator pitch of product. So when I talk to friends and family about it, I equate a few different things across between a business analyst, strategist, project manager, almost into one to translate it into that I lead, don't manage, I lead an area of Shizzy's in corporate actions and tax and that involves interacting every day with our development team, our customers and then the business to make sure what we're working on and what we're delivering is the most valuable thing at any given time. And so that's my, my elevator pitch of what I do. <laughs> Love it. 
And I guess Christmas time is also about being grateful. So is there anything in particular that you're grateful for at the moment? Oh, yeah, it is a real reflection time of year as well. I always really like to end my year looking back and then sort of getting excited about the year to come. This year, I've moved. I've had really wonderful experiences with my friends and family. But at the end of the day, I'm really grateful for feedback and the time that people take to either encourage you and give you that positive feedback or to give you that constructive feedback to really help you grow. I think I'm really grateful for the time that people take for each other to connect and I think that's been really powerful and beneficial for me this year. It's really helped me grow. And I've had some really, really encouraging conversations with people this year as well. And uh, yeah, I'm just really grateful for people who take the time for each other. There you go. Yeah, it's a great caller. It is so helpful as well. Last thing to bring us home. Do you have any final calls to actions or key takeaways that you want people to, to have? Yeah, I would just say, I think it feeds into a few of the things we talked about today is get out of your comfort zone and try something out, whether that's moving into product or taking on a new challenging opportunity or testing out a theory you have that might lead to a really exciting opportunity is just to get out there and try it. And yeah, don't forget about what that high level goal is and what you're trying to achieve, whether that's as you're a product team or as an individual. Just give it a go. His goals. One of my catchphrases is get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that is, yep. it's so true. You know, you don't really get anywhere, I guess, without getting a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us. Really appreciate it. And yeah, that's well, thank a wrap. You guys. Thanks for Sweet. having me. And yeah. Merry Christmas. Yes.